0: This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless. We are doing another
1: summer interview today. Pastor Michael, are you ready? I'm very ready, uh, ready to continue to break down the new Calvinism, especially because we have uh, returning back with us, Brad Merlin, call you uh, an expert scientist of the new Calvinism. Does that, does that work? I guess that
2: would, that would count. Yeah. Expert scientist. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
0: Brad, will you just tell uh, our audience in case they didn't catch our first interview with you just a little bit about your work?
2: Sure, yeah. I am a sociologist by training. Um, I earned my PhD in sociology at the University of Notre Dame in 2016. Uh, To do that, you need to write a book-length research project, uh, and mine was on the neo-reform movement from a social science perspective, you know, rather than like a theological or a pastoral perspective. So um, I spent four years gathering all sorts of data, qualitative data on the new Calvinism and the broader landscape of American evangelicalism. And um, my dissertation ended up being published last year by Oxford, U- Oxford University Press as a book, Reformed Resurgence, The New Calvinist Movement and the Battle Over American Evangelicalism. So um, that's why you guys like talking to me, I guess. And um, right now I'm a sociologist at the University of Texas at Austin.
0: Yep. Yeah, thanks. We, uh, if you haven't heard it, we have recorded a first interview with Brad quite some episodes back, and we discussed his book as a whole, but there was a lot to his book, and we are happy to have him back to kind of zero in on a few issues. And so today we're going to specifically discuss with Brad, we're going to talk about the secularization that made the New Calvinism maybe possible, if I can say it that way, and what those of us who are part of conservative Christianity kind of should look at going forward uh, in the, uh, in the future. And and if there are lessons to learn. So, so Brad, what role did secularization play in your research uh, and in the founding of new Calvinism?
2: Right. So um, even though the book is about the neo-reformed or new Calvinist movement, it's also kind of about a bigger issue. I like to think of it as religion in the modern world and specifically conservative religion. So in sociology of religion, that's one of the classic issues, right, is kind of um, what's called secularization, which can be, under- uh, maybe I should just define that first. Yeah, Seculariz- be great. Secularization is basically just um, the notion or hypothesis that um, modernity or the modern world causes problems for traditional religion.
0: And that and, could be and what, Yeah, what does that, what do they mean when they traditionally say the, the problems of the modern world? for religion
2: right so um, there's there's two sets of problems here there's the problems of the modern world and then the problems that can cause for religion so some of the problems of the of the modern world at least in classical secularization theory would be things like um, pluralism so a wide range of worldviews and lifestyles present in in your society Um, urbanization the idea you know just the growth of cities and people moving into cities and city life um all sorts of things um what's called rationalization so kind of the removal of the removal of the more uh, mystical or mysterious and enchantment aspects of of life and kind of the um, dominance of a rationalized um bureaucratized view of the world um the growth of scientific knowledge broadly, some people claim, causes problems for religion. So there's a handful of things about the modernization of societies that are hypothesized to cause troubles for religion. The other set of problems is okay, what what problems for religion? So there's we'll get into this later, but there's you know it's usually something about decline, right? Declining mm-hmm. belief, declining going to religious services, and all sorts of things like that, or um, the the religion kind of changing, and uh, what would be viewed historically as problematic or negative ways, those those sorts of things. So it's two sets of problems. The problems of the modern world causes troubles for conservative religion. That's basically secularization in a nutshell. Um, so that was all running the background when I was starting this project, um, having you know, been uh, reading in sociology of religion for years prior to starting this project. Uh, I mean, um, some of the professors I worked with at Notre Dame had written on secularization in the past. So it was something I was thinking about as I was going to the into the project. Um, you asked me how secularization um might have caused or like fed into the new Calvinism as a phenomenon, right? That was your original question. Yeah. Um so uh that that's a complex issue, but in the book I basically talk about that there are some aspects of the broader American culture, which are generally more secularized um, aspects seeping into American evangelicalism and that the new Calvinism is in, in some sense, responding to or pushing, back, pushing back against those. So one would be the, um, what's called the triumph of the therapeutic. So a, a very kind of psychoanalytic or therapeutic approach to life. Um, and that where everything's about therapy and self-help and feeling good about yourself and living your best life and so on. And how that has um, over the decades seeped into American evangelicalism in various ways. And the new Calvinism is responding against that. Another is the um, I, I, I group these two together: the gender and sexual revolutions um, that really um, started to take off in the 1960s, although they had roots before that. Um, and those have secularizing, secularizing tendencies, um, with you know, uh, sexual relations being, uh, I guess, outside of marriage um, in various ways, and. Uh, all sorts of sexual things and, um, gender, the increase of women in the workforce and other sorts of changing gender dynamics, um, second and third wave and fourth wave feminism and that sort of thing, the growth of contraception might be tossed in there. So those, the gender and sexual revolutions, um, in various ways have seeped into American evangelicalism. Um, and then I also talk about in the book, the, the pluralism i was talking about um and that um i actually refer to not just pluralism like the uh, but a kind of fluidity of of religious and non-religious beliefs and lifestyles um and that that too has seeped into american evangelicalism in the sense of um people um not believing what they're supposed to believe in a sense you have you see all these surveys of evangelicals believing things that uh, evangelicals haven't historically believed and so on so those are just a few of the ways not to mention you know technology is a big aspect of it too and the internet and all that and and urbanization so um, all those things are running in the background of my book and and play in as causal factors to the uh, what's going on with the new Calvinism
0: And, and it seems like maybe I'm wrong I think you discussed that One of the other inciting incidents, which I think would be related to secularization, is the church, the evangelical church confronting postmodernism now. Is that what you mean by the pluralism or is that separate? Um, I mean, I
2: would say postmodernity as a cultural condition. I I make a distinction between postmodernity and postmodernism. Okay. Not everybody does, but so postmodernity for me is a socio-cultural condition and postmodernism is more of the philosophy and the ideas behind it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, postmodernity as a sociocultural condition is definitely, you know, maps onto a lot of the things I've been listing off. So, um, and, and um, so the, the emerging church conversation in the late nineties through the first half of the uh, first decade, of, you know, the 2000s um, was a conversation, in large part, about postmodernism as a kind of uh, way of thinking, but also, I think maybe less so, um, postmodernity as a sociocultural condition, which would include a lot of the things: urbanization, um, uh, rationalization in certain ways, but also things like relativism and um, all, all that that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big mishmash of broader cultural and social trends and ideas that the new Calvinism is kind of, you know, just embedded in that can't avoid being embedded in these things.
1: I guess I, I just have some thoughts uh, as yeah. you're saying it, I guess my, my mind is just trying to, you know, uh, look at the various movements that I can think of uh, that do track with these various ideas. Right. So the triumph of the therapeutic, you really see that everywhere. Right. I mean, that's, that is ubiquitous uh, throughout the, evangelical church um over the last couple decades you know there's it's it was seemingly anyway for a long time uh it was very uh cool and still maybe is to like uh, attack the prosperity gospel particularly within new calvinism uh and so you see there like this i don't know maybe the the height of a therapeutic kind of way of looking at religion like uh you know you follow god here's all the things you get you will be happier you will live your best life now you will you know uh, attain uh, all these things, all these goals that you have, personal goals, uh, whatever they may be, these will be granted to you if you follow. Uh, but I, I'm just trying to think about ways that, you know, this permeated uh, the new Calvinism itself or, or you know, uh, aspects of evangelicalism outside of the, you know, we're, I mean, we're talking about the downfall of new Calvin, Calvinism itself, right? So uh, if, if we look at, well, here are the broader trends in evangelicalism, here's even what uh, new Calvinism set itself up against, but... Uh, you know, do you have any uh, thoughts about w- what ways you see these same trends within the New Calvinism itself?
2: I see it far less so within the New Calvinism than I do in what I call mainstream generic evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Um, your your typical suburban, maybe seeker sensitive megachurch. Um, so I think the New Calvinism, to the extent it can still be talked about as a identifiable, you know, movement, is mostly conscious of and reacting against this therapeutic ethos um you may see a sermon now and then that kind of um starts to go in those directions but i think it's pretty rare um and largely because well in part one they're they're aware of this ther- therapeutic ethos as a problem and another is kind of the reform world uh, and calvinist being more of a heady crowd that's um more i think doubtful of the more emotive expressions of evangelical faith so a couple those things kind of make it a little bit more resistant to therapeuticism. That's what I call it. Um, that then than the large rest of American evangelicalism. Um, there's actually a, a book um, called the um, something like the uh, Sentima- sentimentalization of American evangelicalism. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's also that sentimentalized aspect to it too.
0: So, so is new Calvinism, is it, present is it coming into this cultural milieu as a solution or as a way forward is it kind of trying to hold back these problems for conservative religion or is it kind of a this is the way we can go through this period of um post-modernity secularization
2: um i think it's mostly and this is the way I talk about it in my book presents itself not as a solution to those problems, but as an alternative, especially for young people. Hmm. So people, you know, in their twenties and thirties um, so especially, but you know, forties and fifties too and you know, older um, who are um, Christians and in, in uh, like historical traditional Christians in the Protestant tradition who want uh, alternative to um, all the things I mentioned earlier about, you know, therapeutic, sentimentalized, gender and sexual revolution, postmodern, relativistic, whatever, whatever. And that the new Calvinism provides a strong alternative uh, to that for, for younger Americans. Um, a big part of that also is the whole idea of a sovereign God who is in control of your life and has a destiny for you and, and is, in, is in control of things and can make sense of suffering uh, in certain ways. So I'd say it's, it's mostly an alternative. They, 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 they may at times try to solve those problems, but I I don't see that, see that as a major project for the new Calvinism or, or its leaders. Yeah. So you you even
1: get this, uh, you know, Matt and I have talked a little bit about, uh, we listened to, um, I can't remember the podcast. You kind of uh, teed us off to it uh, where you had Kevin DeYoung and Tim Keller. uh, And I can't remember who else was there, Um, but they were talking about your book and asking, uh Keller about you know hey how much does this map onto what you were thinking when you know all of this was starting and everything and he basically said yeah like you know merlin got it right um and uh you know one of the things that he talks about is you know we we did we wanted this other option we wanted this new option because we didn't want that like the old like religious right uh like that that's how they're kind of you know this kind of antagonism to uh, culture and to the way things are going. But also, we didn't want to, you know, completely abandon the faith, obviously, and, and you know, slide into some kind of liberalism. And so we want that center mediating position between the two, uh, as a new way forward uh, for evangelicals. Yeah, so- you, yeah, you're saying it's an
0: alternative within evangelicalism, mm-hmm. not to necessarily the culture at large, when you say they're presenting an alternative
2: it's a good question.
0: I think it's a, a little bit of both.
2: Mo- a little bit of both, sorry, but um, mostly for younger evangelicals, because that's who's kind of already kind of on the radar and potential kind of target audience for this movement. But in theory, in principle, it could also serve as an alternative for any American or, I mean, I just, I'm just limiting myself to the U.S. right now, but um, I'd say it's, it's primarily an alternative for younger Evangelical um, Christians in the U.S., but like I said, yep. in, pr- in principle, it could be for anybody.
0: Well, I know in your book you present um, this additional lens, maybe by which we can view secularization, that I think is really important. And I think it—you um, you, refer to it as cultural entropy—and I think it's really important because almost everyone I talk to in the West um conservative christians uh, you know i've joked with uh michael even uh even people into things like the bitcoiners and cryptocurrency is these all these people share this feeling of there is something breaking down in our culture that they're that the system can't hold and you know all and people have different explanations and they're you know looking at different reasons for that but that that seems to be a very uh Maybe that anxiety seems to be common in the West, especially in the U.S. at this point. Um, can you tell us about um, this, uh, this frame that you put on um, secularization that was going on, that is going on, I think?
2: Yeah, that's right. And what you said about this kind of things breaking down, falling apart, that's kind of what I'm trying to tap into with this concept of cultural entropy. It is a phrase I steal from another sociologist um, at Notre Dame. Um, Terry McDonald, who has more in mind, like the the breakdown of material culture, but here Hmm. I'm using it differently to talk about abstract cultural systems as a whole. So, um, well, there's, there's other ways, previous ways of thinking about secularization other than the one I present in the book. Hmm. So the most straightforward that you, you know, a lot of people have probably seen in charts and stuff would be like decline in belief in God. Just statistical decline, right, that you can measure on surveys, or people going to church less, people praying less, even though that's not really happening, people send prayers about the same over the decades, but like declining things you can measure on surveys that you can operationalize or, you know, write a survey question, it'll tap into that and you can show it declining either declining over time, over, over the decades, or at least declining, um, among different age, like birth cohorts, like the, sure. the, the, the more recently you've been born, the less like you are to believe in God or go to religious services and so on. So all that I just refer to as kind of straightforward numerical decline. And you do see that I should note, like, I'm not saying that's not happening by any means that is happening. Another, another way to think about it. And this was really popularized by, um, a sociologist, Mark Chaves, back in the mid nineties, he wrote an article called secularization as declining religious authority. So Mm. this is a little different, right? So it's, it's basically that people don't care anymore. What your what pastors and priests say, or like what the religious experts say you are supposed to believe or how you should live. Mm. People just don't, that doesn't hold the same authority or weight anymore. Like it did in the, you know, long ago like the first half of the 20th century or prior to that now people you know it's just the it is what it what it's called declining religious authority right um there's others too one one classic way to think about secularization and sociology is that um it is it's called differentiation so the religious aspect of your life becomes compartmentalized from other aspects of your life so you have kind of um, your work life which kind of represents the economic or commerce sphere of the world and you have you know your education schooling life and you have the government and you have all these different spheres of life right economics the government education um, all sorts of things and these become these are differentiated from the religious aspect of your life it becomes this, this sphere of your life. That's like, just not, it's not the all encompassing sphere of everything where all the other things are embedded in. It's just like one part of you or whatever. It's not just one part of you. It's only one part of society too. It's like the religious sphere becomes differentiated from all the other spheres or fields of, of the, of a society. So
1: that's another way to think about it. Um, Another. I'm just going to add, like with that differentiation, uh, we're, I mean, is that? It doesn't seem to me like historically, like that's like necessary or or even normative per se. Where do you trace that back to? Because I'm just thinking about, um, you know, I've I've done over the last couple of years a lot of study into uh, kind of the effects of industrialization and uh, things like that in society, and where you have, you know, for instance, the way I'm thinking about it is is uh, much more on a kind of personal family level. You know, you maybe have a time at one point where the average person uh, their, you know, the the home life is one where, you know, your occupation is probably out of the home or around the home. Um, your food production is probably in and around the home. You do it with your family. Um, the education is, you know, often uh, either in a small community or it's at the home. Uh, these these different aspects where, you know, uh, all these different parts of your life that are maybe now more compartmentalized uh, are much more uh either localized or even like organically a part of your family life. And not that that was true everywhere all the time, but it does seem like that was more normative in a sense uh, at, at one point. Uh, and then you start to have these kind of breaking apart of, okay, well, you know, everything gets kind of uh, differentiated in that sense uh, outside of the home. So that's where I think about it just cause that's where I've done uh, some reading lately. But uh, do you, I mean, do you have an idea of kind of where you, where you stem this from or where this, you know, this kind of breaking apart is, is starting or has it, I mean, has it always been, and then there's just, you know, kind of a, a slow return back or what does that look like?
2: Right. That's the kind of biggest question that I think sociologists are at their best at or, or can or should be right. A lot of sociology is this kind of nitty gritty, but I love the big picture questions and I'm, I'm not an expert on that question, but I mean, in the, in the medieval period, the middle ages, I think you do see a much more integrated world. And then, then you where where we are now and how did that happen? And, um, I would, I would, I think it's a centuries long gradual process, but I would probably tend to agree with um, uh, Brad Gregory, the historian at Notre Dame, who um, um, he's, he's Catholic. And so he like does this as I guess it's kind of his critique of the reformed, uh, the, the reformation, but he, he, he says it's the seeds are in the reformation um, because you have right away in the first generation, you have um, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others disagreeing on various aspects of, of life, um, and, uh, for, from scripture. And so you end up with, um, different conceptions of, of, um, uh, what right doctrine is, and that evolves into different conceptions of, um, how to live. And that evolves into different conceptions of the good and that evolves and just things start to kind of, um, mm-hmm. differentiate, I think, um, and I think, so, I would say the seeds of it are probably the, the the Reformation movement, although I don't know. maybe maybe your listeners will take me to task for that. but
0: yeah. uh, well, um, well, Brad, right now I'm wearing a Charles Spurgeon t-shirt. So this is this is a this is a Protestant show. we're're we're, we certainly don't hear uh, not here for that, but we yeah, will not receive
1: any critiques
0: of... critiques uh, <laughs> of the reformers of the reform. World. I think, yeah, I think that it is, I think all three of those. Are very interesting, right? The one you hear about the most kind of popular level are these surveys, right? Less people believe these things, less, but right, the, for example, the one about religious authority, I think it's hard for me and probably a lot of our listeners to even understand that one, because I've never lived in a time where we cared about what priests, right, or, or feel, right, or pastors, what they would tell us to think in a cultural way. And then the third one is, yeah, I think that, I think that is one where I would even say the new Calvinists were attempting per, to present a, um, an alternative, right. That they were, you know, right. John Piper makes all kinds of statements about how all of life should glorify God. Right. You know, and, and they, and that might be a little kyperion I don't know, but I think that that is that all three of those, you know, are definitely in operation. Um,
2: Right, and I was going to say a fourth, um, which is uh, kind of different still, which is, it's called, it's not as popular, but it's called internal secularization, which is pretty, it hmm. could be pretty simply understood as um, when, say, some denomination liberalizes on okay. one or more issues, right? So, um, and you can just, under, or, or even just an organization, so just kind of a more circumscribed, like, the United Methodist Church or whatever, the PCUSA or something like liberalize, and in that sense, they're kind of secularized, secularizing within themselves. So those are the four main existing ways of thinking about secularization. And um, looking at the neo-reform movement and the way that it reacts to and responds with and interacts with the, the broader field of American evangelicalism, um, none of them really struck me as exactly right for... Hmm the type of conflict and infighting I saw among evangelical leaders, right? And I'm sure you can see this too. Like just most people who pay attention to American evangelicalism can see this, whether it's on Twitter or whatever. And just a couple of case studies I give in my book would be like Rob Bell's whole thing 10 years ago with hell and the the huge blow up about Rob Bell. And the, a lot of fighting that happened over the course of months uh, about that. And then the, the world vision thing with um, their short lived policy change on same sex marriage, and then the reversal less than 40 hour, 48 hours later. And then, I mean, I feel like if, if the Bethany Christian services thing had happened 10 years ago, it would have been a lot bigger than it was, for example. Right. So that'd be an, another right. one. Right? right. So those types of things, and you have these evangelical leaders who are on different sides of these issues, Um, So you have um, people who are fine with um, uh, annihilationism or universalism in terms of hell. you have people who are in favor of redefining marriage to include gay and lesbian couples, you have people who um, are affirming of, you know, gay and lesbian relationships and all sorts of things. Um, And there's other issues too, you know, that are
0: not identity politics, all kinds of.
2: Right. I mean, right now, right now, a lot of stuff on race and social justice and there's people um, on different sides of, of that. And and so we could think of, you know, a few other issues at least, but you have basically the thing to observe in that you can see clearly in the second half of my book is that you have American evangelical leaders ignoring the lay people, like just the people who are supposed to be in charge fighting with each other about all sorts of issues and having different approaches to evangelical faith and life. Right. So what what do you do with that? Um, and it's and and by the end I talk about it as cultural entropy. Cultural here doesn't refer to the broader American culture, but it refers to American evangelicalism itself as its own mm. relig- as, as its own religious culture. That in previous decades had at least somewhat more coherence and togetherness to it, and that especially you know since the '90s and after the after the turn of, of the millennium has started to fall apart and break down, I think. So that's basically the idea of cultural entropy that I propose at the end of the book as a as a different way of thinking about secularization. So I'd say that I'd say American evangelicalism is secularizing within itself. So it's close to internal secularization, but it's in the sense that um, a previously coherent cultural system is starting to break down and fall apart right. and, and kind of dissolve and go in different ways.
0: I and I think that often describes, uh you know, my experience, my relationship with evangelicalism. I often call myself barely an evangelical because I've I've know very little about what that means anymore, right? the The traditional, is it Bebbington, right? The quadrilateral of all of those things, right? Those things I haven't changed my opinion on, right? The, the biblicism, the cr- the christ-centered the conversion right all of these things i'm you know i I haven't changed but it seems to me that yeah i think what you're saying is exactly true that whatever that that those things might have been the narrative the cultural center of evangelicalism and right now what actually is central to evangelicalism is at least much less clear than it probably was uh 50 60 years ago Hey, I was actually grilling and editing this show and thought I would just say a few things as we come to an end. Thank you, Brad, for coming on to the podcast again. Actually, this is part one of two parts of an hour-long interview we did with him. And so we just thought we would split it into two shows for this reason. But I will add the unedited interview to our YouTube channel. So if you'd prefer to listen to it all the way through. If you don't care about that, Just sit back and your podcast feed will update next week with the second part of this interview. I want you to think about something as you wait for the next part of the interview, though. I think it's really important for us to realize what Brad is saying as he proposes these different ways we can become secular. There are new ways and there are different ways to secularize. And what that means for you and for me is that just because you made it through last time and just because you resisted some thought pattern that led to secularization, which we might say of separating some part of your life from the word of God from Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean you'll make it through the next round because there are these new ways that are happening. And obviously, Brad is talking about one that he's proposing might be at play in evangelicalism. But here's the other thing. Yes, we are doing a post-mortem on the young, restless, and reformed, and Brad is saying that they were proposing an alternative option to secularization, which they've said is true. And we are saying that, well, that time has kind of come and gone. But before we get too critical of them, I want you to think about how would you have practically pushed back against it and how will you do it now because it's it's even more strong now than it was then and so before we critique them let's think about the difficulty of the problem they were facing and so I think there were just two things Brad said that at least for me on a personal level were a a basic place to start I think the first one is We do not compartmentalize our lives. We do not compartmentalize our lives. We bring everything in subjection to Jesus. Everything. All of our lives, our love and our faith in Jesus can come out. And now that doesn't mean there aren't different ways and uh, different arenas for that, different spheres, and that they don't all look the same. But we cannot deny the crown rights of Jesus in any area of life and expect us to not over time secularize our lives. I think the second one he said is one that's maybe even more foreign to me, but it's leaning into the religious authorities around us. Well, what does that mean? I think first, of course, it means leaning into the authority of the Bible. And second, into the church that God has put us in. So, sorry, I just had a few thoughts on this interview while I was grilling this beautiful restless summer day. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you stick around. We have more great restless summer stuff coming and we've got a whole new slate of shows planned for this fall. We can't wait to see you. Let us know if you like what we're doing. Rate, review the show and we'll see you next time.